it is really helpful to have someone who has gone before. Someone who has gone before. Maybe you guys know this as you've moved to a different city and you have a friend who's already done the move and experienced new life. And so you rely on that person, someone who has gone before to help you navigate your own transition. Maybe you're exploring a new hiking trail. It's useful to have someone who's gone before to show you the ins and outs and all the dangerous places and all the different steps that you need to take in order to ensure safety. Maybe you're entering into a new life stage. Maybe you're entering into a relationship, entering into marriage, entering into first child being born, entering even into perhaps a stage of suffering that you've never experienced before. Having someone who has gone before and having them there right there with us makes all the difference, doesn't it? Our passage today from Acts chapter 7, I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Acts chapter 7, it reminds us that Christ, our good shepherd, who has in fact gone before, he is with us in our suffering, and he will deliver us. We need only entrust ourselves to him. That's the main point, large sentence, so let me just repeat that. Christ is our good shepherd who has in fact gone before. He is with us in our suffering and he will deliver us. We need only entrust ourselves to him. Obviously we're going to continue walking through the book of Acts. And if you've been been with us for a while, you know exactly what the book of Acts is about. I encourage you to write that down right now. Just consider that a test for yourself. What is the book of Acts about? You should be able to write it. It is about the ministry of the risen Christ as he builds his church through to the disciples, in the power of the Spirit. The risen Christ is building his church here, doing that through the disciples and their preaching, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in the Gospels, you can think of that's, a, you know, that's about the ministry of Jesus here on earth. You know, he lives his righteous life, dies on the cross for sin, rises from the dead. That's what the Gospels is about. The book of Acts details the, the ministry of the risen Christ. He's still at work through the apostles, building his church in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is all about the gospel. Jesus tells them, take my gospel to the ends of the earth. If you're visiting with us and you're exploring Christianity, this gospel is the good news of Jesus. And it goes all, so that's the good news in terms of the problem. We look all the way back to the beginning of scripture where God creates man to be in a good relationship with him. Perfect, loving relationship, just like the only perfect father would create with his people. The people, though, they rebel, they sin. They rebel against the one true king, and so they earn for themselves judgment for their treason. The Bible even says this is judgment even in hell. But God, being rich in mercy, what does he do? He pursues the sinners that rebelled against him, and he sends them his son. He says, I'm going to give you a way out. The righteous Jesus, who fulfills all of the law's demands, and the righteous Christ, who dies for the unrighteous on the cross, bearing the wrath, the sin, and the wrath that those people, his people deserved. And so in Christ, we have a way out in answer to our own problems, deliverance, salvation. And those who repent of their sins and believe on him are saved. They're reconciled with the Father. They know him as Father. They're reconciled with the true King, giving full citizenship in his kingdom, adopted even into his own family, where we know the love of God, the peace of God, we're forgiven. We have reconciliation with God himself. That is the good news. 
And if, this is, if you're hearing this for the first time, the, the Bible says that if you turn from your sins and believe, you will be saved. So the question for us all is, have you repented of your sins and believed? We'll come back to that question for you who are visiting. Uh, recently, we've been looking at the faithfulness of one particular disciple named Stephen. Stephen. And he boldly stands for Christ even in front of his own persecutors. Given he was preaching the gospel of Jesus, the, leader, the leaders of Israel, they scoop him up, right, for this preaching in the name of Christ. And they arrest him, they interrogate him, not because they wanted to learn more about Jesus, but in order to shut him up, just like they did with Jesus, or so they thought. Now we know that the council of Israel makes him walk the same path of Christ, that is, to the death. And the account of the, this first martyr of the church is in fact a, a difficult one to read. I found myself finding it incredibly difficult to read as we read of such vehemence and violence against this one faithful follower of Jesus. But as we've mentioned before, do not feel sorry for Stephen. This account here is a reminder to all Christians, to you, Christian, that Christ is your good shepherd who has in fact gone before and in your trouble, he will deliver you. You need only entrust yourself to him. Look at Acts chapter 7. And we're actually going to start from verse 71 here. Or sorry, verse 51. We're going to pick up where, he, where Stephen's here. He lays out this defense of who Jesus is. And then he speaks directly to the council. These are like the top leaders of Israel. And they have, the, they have really all authority over Israel. And he says to them, this, this Stephen... This meek and humble guy, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's basically calling them pagans. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels... And did not keep it. Now when they, that is the council, heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We see in our first point that for the Christian, even amidst danger... There is deliverance. This is point number one. Even amidst danger, there is deliverance. Stephen here is obviously in great danger. I mean, here speaking prophetically, he boldly rebukes the leaders of Israel for their own sin. And in this respect, he is just like the prophets of the Old Testament. The problem, though, is that just like Israel in the Old Testament, the, the, the Israelites there, the leaders of Israel, they didn't care what the prophets had to say. They didn't care what Stephen had to say. Who cares if they are from God? They don't care. So they killed them. That is the prophets of old. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? The rebellion climaxes as they betrayed and murdered Jesus Christ, God's righteous one. The one to whom all of God's promises point. 
the one who fulfills all of God's promises. So Stephen says, though you received the law that commanded them to obey God and to repent of their sins and turn back to him, which the prophets echoed, he says, you're the ones who did not keep it. Look how they respond there in verse 54. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This scene is intense. Of course, it's not intense if you kind of are thinking scientifically about why they're grinding their teeth. You know, are they stressed out and so they're just grinding their teeth? And we had a laugh this morning, like, what exactly does that look like? Here, imagine how people, they clench their fists and they're ready to launch them at others. They're grinding their teeth because they're so angry and frustration and the anger is so pent up, it is rising from their soul and coming out of their bodies, even in this grinding of their teeth. I've been around a very good number of angry people, and I have been oneself. Some of you maybe come from this background, and you know this anger that rises up within you that leads to fights and worse. Stephen here, he's a lamb amidst these growling wolves who are waiting for blood. If you were Stephen, how would you react right there in that moment? I mean, maybe if you are full of anger yourself... You're going to roll up your sleeves. You say, fine then. If I'm going down, I'm going to take one of you down with me at least. Or maybe you might be full of fear. You say, ha, just kidding. I didn't say that all that Jesus is Lord stuff. I said all that Jesus of Lord stuff makes me bored. That's what I said, guys. I take it all back. But look at Stephen's response there in 54. He's not full of anger, nor is he full of fear. You look at verse 54, he is full of the Spirit. Such a contrast here. Stark contrast to the council with their desires and sins rising, rising. It's highlighted in 6.15, right? Even though these, the same council, right, they're the ones who arrested him. They're the ones who set up false witnesses against him. They're the ones who accuse him falsely of speaking against God. You look at verse 15, and gazing at him... This is uh, chapter 6. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. The council, their face, right? They, they represented Satan in their anger. But Stephen's face, though, it represented God of heaven. The peace and the joy that is found with God. Maybe even, I mean, you know, you're supposed to maybe recall even Moses' face after he beheld the glory of God. In the entire account, Stephen here, he's calm. He's full of the Spirit. He's living for God. That's how you can think about it. He's full of the Spirit. That is, he's living for God. He's walking in step with the Spirit. He's, he's walking according to the will of God, living for the will of God. And then you look at 55 and 56. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at his right hand, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is no psychological event. This is a God-given vision where, as one said, God draws back the veil so that Stephen, as he looks above, can behold the heavenly realities. And he sees something of God's glory and the crucified and resurrected Christ right there sharing the throne with God. Jesus at God's right hand. That's authority language. That's power language. That's position language. We know from the book of Revelation that no one else shares the throne of God but the slain lamb. And he says that he sees the son of man right there. Jesus, the son of man. This, friends, is a hugely significant title. 
Stephen seems to be drawing from the Old Testament book of Daniel. There too in chapter 7, God pulls back the veil to the future heavenly realities for Daniel, the prophet. This is what Daniel saw and then he reports it. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. That's God, Yahweh. And to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel, as God pulls back those heavenly, the, the veil to the heavenly realities, he sees one like a Son of Man. Like a Son of Man. Approaching God without a mediator, how is that possible? And this guy, this, this one, like a son of man, he exercises dominion and glory over a kingdom. And his kingdom reigns forever. And all the while, all people from every tribe, tongue, and language give him praise. This is Christ. Having accomplished salvation for his people on the cross and having been raised from the dead, God has placed everything under subjection to him. And he is at the right hand of the Father without a mediator because he is God, God the Son. This wasn't the first time that the council had heard of the connection between Jesus and the Son of Man. Right? It's not the first time as Stephen's sitting there speaking these words. I assume the council remembered Jesus' own words to them before his own crucifixion. As they interrogated and mocked him in Luke 22, they say, If you are the Christ, God's chosen one, then tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he answered to them and said, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And you know the story. They proceed to execute him by hanging him on the cross. In relation to Stephen, do you see God's grace in granting Stephen this vision right before he dies in the midst of all of that danger? In facing the danger for the name of Christ, God offers a true vision of the vindicated Christ that is his Christ. In the danger, God grants him deliverance, not by snapping his fingers... And removing him immediately right out of the circumstance. Not by immediately raining down fire and then killing everybody that, that opposed him. But instead in the midst of all of that danger. He offers deliverance. By having him behold the Lord. The Son of Man. He who had in fact exercised dominion over sin, death and Satan. He who had won eternal salvation for all of his people. And then after God had raised him from the dead in the resurrection, this son of man was seated at the right hand of glory. Receiving all glory and honor and power in fulfillment of all of God's promises. Church, do you recognize that courage came through seeing Christ? Courage came through seeing Christ. In all of that danger, keep in mind, it was not the removal of him out of that situation, nor killing all immediately that opposed him, but in seeing Christ clearly. The question is, do we see him clearly? Let's be clear, let's be clear also, you know, we don't need a God-given vision like Stephen did, apart from the word of God, to see Christ clearly. 
We know from the, for a fact that even in, in the time of the apostles, not everybody, not all Christians had visions. But yet they were all called to follow after Jesus. They were all called to have courage in Christ, to know Him. Besides that, God had not given them the Bible right here as we have it today. For us, God has given His sufficient Word. And in it we behold Christ, the Savior and King. In the Bible, in the Word of God, we come to know the one who has, in fact, gone before us and the one who is with us in our suffering. And in seeing Christ clearly from the Word of God, we are encouraged. We are encouraged, just like Stephen was. So in your danger, friends, do you see Christ clearly? Who, who, to whom does your eyes turn? Do they turn to Christ or do they turn to himself for Stephen? God pulls back the veil of heavenly reality so that Stephen would behold Jesus. Jesus is God's holy one who will not see corruption. Is that who you turn to? As your body wastes away even. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36. When you feel out of control, is that the one that you turn to? The one who is in control? He is the one who pours out His Spirit on His people to work wonders and signs just as He promised in the Old Testament? Is He the one you trust to for deliverance? Christ is God's chosen servant to die on the cross for sins. Acts chapter 3, verse 13, is he the one that you turn to when you're wrestling even with the ugliness and nastiness of your own sin? He is the holy and righteous one, the one you turn to to depend on his work as opposed to your own. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, he is the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, he is God's anointed one, the one to whom all scripture points to, the one who is both deliverer and judge, the son of man, son of God. So, so Stephen says there, he proclaims, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is the one he sees. And more importantly, Jesus is the one he knows. Do you, Christian, see Christ clearly? We need to see Christ clearly if we are to find courage for the Christian life. Do you find courage in Christ in your own danger because of who he is? And, and do you know that he is all-sufficient? Or in your mind, is he insufficient? Maybe in his insufficiency, right, he doesn't really care for you all that well. And in your sin, you turn and you'd rather say, forget God, I'm going to take care of myself. Maybe you find him insufficient to meet you in the storm. Maybe you feel like he's forgotten you. Maybe you feel like, you know, he's lost track of you in all of your turmoil. There's just too much for him to do with all the mountains falling into the sea. Maybe you feel like your voice just gets drowned out by the ocean's roar. There's just too much commotion for God to handle. And so you turn away from God and to yourself. And in the sin of turning away from God, you'd rather just simply navigate your own way, relying on your own wisdom, your own strength, your own power. Maybe you feel like God just doesn't care about justice and the things that have, in fact, happened to you in the past. And so you take it upon yourself to exact your own punishment on others according to your own supposed rules of righteousness and your own wrath. Maybe you think Christ doesn't care about your own suffering, and so you fear and you're anxious. 
Friends, if that's you, you realize that in those moments, which friends, let's be honest, that's all of us at various moments, Christ has become blurry to you. In your own mental and emotional fog, in that fog of suffering, and even in the fog of sin. But again, praise God, God's given us the Bible. He's given us the Word and the Spirit of God that we might, what? See Christ more clearly. He is the one who has, in fact, gone before you and has suffered and identifies with us. And He is with us in our suffering. What has He said? God of all faithfulness, as, as Stephen just reminded us, looking at Abraham and everybody else in the Old Testament, many people in the Old Testament, that He is faithful and He says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's faithfulness, friends, right there. The very fact that He sees what He sees and then proclaims it, like all people do when they have a God-given vision, it proclaims all of the truths there that they've been preaching about, the truths of Jesus, that He is in fact Lord and Savior and is in control. So with this vision of Christ, we can then look to Him then in faith. And that's what Stephen here reminds us of today. This brings us to point number two. Even amidst the ferocity, there is faith. Point number one was, in the danger there is deliverance. The deliverance came through a vision of Christ, a reminder of all the truths about who he believes in. And then we see right now that even amidst ferocity and fury, there is faith. Point number two. He not only sees the deliverer, he entrusts himself to him by faith. Has the vision and then entrusts. Knows God, knows Christ, and then entrusts. The people cannot stand what he reports about this vision, right? What he sees and what he proclaims is everything that they hate. Everything that they just killed Jesus for. And so they respond there in verse 57 and 58. Go ahead and look there. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Of course, what happens is... You know, if you're going to go kill somebody and make this guy's skull get crushed by, by stones, you're going to take off your garments before you do that. Look what happens. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This scene is intense. It's not only intense, it's obviously tragic. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me explain why it's tragic. If you're a follower of Jesus, right, the truth that Stephen just said about God and his glory about Jesus Christ, the Son, who dies on the cross for sins, right? Died and he raised, he was raised for our justification. These are all truths that move us to our knees, right? These are all truths that if, if you understand them right, then you're going to be moved to worship in thanksgiving and in praise when we see God's compassion and his kindness and his mercy in saving sinners who don't deserve anything but his wrath. These are truths that the heavenly assembly in the end sings into eternity. Worthy is the Lamb, the Son of God, Lord and Christ. But to the council, they hate these truths. The name of Jesus so infuriated them so much that their solution is death for those who speak of this name. And as Stephen is affirming and confirming all of these glorious truths, what do they do, right? Stephen's lifting up his voice. They lift up their own voice. They cried out with a loud voice and then a refusal to hear any noise about the Savior. They plug their ears and rush together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Make no mistake, the stoning itself is horrific. 
They throw stones at his head and his body until he dies. But what is so much more horrific is the sin in their hearts. If you're exploring Christianity, the Bible says that this sin is in all of us. That's what's so much more horrific. We might wipe people off the face of the planet. They might wipe people off the face of the planet with stones. We might do it just by giving people the silent treatment and treating them as if they were dead. It's still in our hearts. The desires in their hearts are that gives birth to sin and they determine they must rage against the Lord. But in the midst of this satanic fury, you have Stephen whose face was like that of an angel. Of course, he is not free from sin. What makes him different is that he is a sinner who has trusted in Christ for his salvation. Christ has given him a new spirit, not because he deserved it, but because of his grace, Christ's grace. And so in response here, what is, what's Stephen like? He's not like those who raged against the Lord in revenge, in anger. Nor is he fearful, running away. His response is not like those who rage against the Lord, but his response is like his Lord's. His response is like his Lord's. And here you see these beautiful, marvelous parallels that give us all hope. You see these parallels between Christ and then his servant Stephen. Stephen's response is like his Lord's in that Stephen, he, he entrusts himself to God, right? In the midst of suffering. And then secondly, he prays for the salvation of those who caused his suffering. I mean, if you're angry right now, because of whatever you're going through, and you're, you struggle with bitterness and resentment, friends, this is hope right here. Stephen did it, and he's just following Jesus. We too, who have the same spirit, also can follow after Stephen insofar as he follows after Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 59. You see how Stephen entrusted, he entrusted himself to Christ. The first thing he does like Christ, he entrusts himself to Christ who is present. And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Is that not like Jesus? As he knew that his own time had drawn near, as he was nailed to the cross and left to die, he cried out to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke twenty-three forty-six. Second thing he does, when you think of Christ's crucifixion, what was it that Jesus himself prayed to the Father for his enemies and his persecutors? Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does Stephen pray for there in verse 60? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Just as Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, so Stephen entrusts himself to the Lord Jesus just as Jesus prayed to the Father for the forgiveness of his enemies, so Stephen prays to Christ for the same. You see here that courage comes in seeing Christ clearly, who has in fact gone before us, who is with us, and who has secured for us a place with him before the Father's presence. And now he calls us all to trust him to trust him as we follow him and then to witness and as we witness to him. He is, in fact, our Savior. He also is our example. And we see this in various places. Take 1 Peter chapter 2. That's just one of them. Peter the Apostle, who must have witnessed Stephen, we, we imagine, we assume, right there with him, seeing his brother in Christ get stoned, he later on writes to Christians who are, who are suffering themselves unjustly. 
And he encourages them by foisting their eyes to Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, 21 to 23, he speaks about their suffering, even unjustly. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christian, as you face your, the fury, whether for Jesus, whether the fury in your own hearts because of sin, or the simple fact of the fury of suffering that comes from living in this sinful world, Christ calls us in it all to trust in him as we walk after him, as we pursue him. That's exactly what faith is. Faith is not a blind faith. Faith is certainly not this some sort of hope in our ability to hope. That's just a ridiculous understanding of faith. I'm talking about faith as entrusting ourselves wholly to Christ the Lord and Savior because He is who He says He is and He will do all that He has promised. No matter what circumstances you face, we know that Christ is Lord and He reigns over all even right now. And He is present with us in our suffering. He was the one who saw us, right, living underneath the tyranny of sin, giving ourselves to sin and rebellion. And what did he do? What did the eternal Son of God, who existed before time, the second person of the Trinity, he who was with God from the beginning, the one, whom, the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made, what did he do? What did your Savior do, Christian? He did not leave you behind. But having mercy and compassion and steadfast love. What did he do? In all humility, he, he steps down from the glory that was rightly his. He enters into our circumstances, making himself present to lead, present to rescue and save. He even adds to himself the stuff of our own flesh, but of course was without sin. Why did he do these things? To save those whom he set his love upon. We know he went on to suffer at the hands of sinful people. Not just that, not just to suffer at the hands of sinful people, but to suffer on behalf of sinful people, bearing the wrath that his people deserve for their own rebellion. And so what does 1 Peter 3.18 say? It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he would bring us to God. Praise God for that. He does this so that all who entrust ourselves to him would be saved from sin's power. Given new hearts, new spirits, so that we would live in union and love and fellowship with him, living underneath his loving rule. Friends, do you believe that? Is that your Christ that you see today in your troubles? If God has certainly delivered us from sin and eternal death on Jesus because of Jesus, certainly God will give us everything else 
because with Christ there is every good thing. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And he promises that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus. And praise God in his death and in his resurrection. He has in fact gone before so that we who will follow him, not if, will, will follow him into death. We will also undoubtedly follow him into new life where he brings us safe and secure before the presence of God the Father. Isn't it interesting that this vision that he has, Jesus is there with God on the same throne, sharing the throne of God, and he sees it directly. How does he do that? People say it's because Christ is there for him. And maybe in some ways he is standing to not just judge, right? We know the Son of Man comes to judge, judgment language. We also know that he receives those who trust in him. Perhaps he is standing at the right hand of God, poised to receive Stephen, the first martyr, for his name. Praise God, God, Christ, praise God, Christ is faithful. And he is building his church, and he will not be stopped. He cannot be stopped. He is, in fact, Lord. He won salvation for his people. He's the one who gave them their mission to take the good news to the ends of the earth. He is the one who empowers for them for their mission by the Spirit. And he is the one who has promised them his very own presence. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The book of Acts shows us God is faithful. He's building his early church here, even in the face of persecution and suffering. In fact, we'll soon see how God even uses persecutors to build his church. Did you notice who is overseeing the stoning of Stephen? It's a man named Saul. Here he persecutes Christians, dragging them off to jail, as we're going to see soon. But in a couple of chapters, we'll see how by God's grace, the flag that Stephen had to set down in his death, Saul himself picks up for the glory of God. And in so doing, as we're going to soon see over the next couple of chapters, even Stephen's prayer is answered as Saul comes to faith in Jesus, as God does not hold Saul's sin against him. Praise God for this example, marvelous example in Stephen of what it looks like to be a faithful follower and a faithful witness of Jesus. Christ, our good shepherd, who has in fact gone before us, he is in fact with us in our suffering, and he will deliver us. You, Christian, need only entrust yourself to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise. We acknowledge that you are the holy and righteous one. You are our righteousness. You are our sanctification. You are our justification. We thank you, God, that you are with us. We pray, God, that you would make your presence known by the Spirit according to your word, that we might see you more clearly week after week after week, day after day. We thank you, Lord, that even here, as the church gathers, we see a more clear vision of you. As we sing your praises according to your word, as we pray according to your word, as, you hear, as we hear your word preached, we are reminded over and over and over again 
that you are who you say you are and that you will accomplish all that you have promised. Root our hearts, we pray, in your promises by faith as we entrust ourselves to you. In your name we pray, amen.